I'm John Moorhead, and this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. And today I'm privileged to have as a guest, uh, a scholar of new religious movements that I've followed for quite some time, George Cressidis. And uh, George, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you here. I'm going to read the bio off uh, the back of uh, one of George's books that we're going to be talking about today. In fact, I'll show it here for those of you watching the podcast rather than listening. We're going to be talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, A New Introduction. And uh, George Gracidis is an honorary research fellow in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at York St. John University in the UK. His books include the Bloomsbury Handbook uh, to Studying Christians, Historical Dictionary of Jehovah's Witnesses, second edition in 2019, Jehovah's Witnesses, Continuity and Change, and the Bloomsbury Companion to New Religious Movement. So it's a privilege to have uh, a prestigious scholar of new religious movements and somebody who specializes in certain areas. We're going to be talking about one of those areas of expertise today. And I always like to begin with a little personal background. What is it that gave you the scholarly and personal interest and passion in pursuing a study of Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, well, I think it's a matter of opportunities that crop up. Um, when I was appointed at the University of Wolverhampton, basically they wanted somebody to teach Buddhism, which I've done a bit of work on. Um, but when I was at the interview for the post, they said, what other modules, as we call them, um, would you be interested in starting up? And um, I had been... Uh, involved to some extent in new religious movements more widely so i said well how about new religious movements and i, I thought they would be horrified at that and i wouldn't get the job but they were very enthusiastic so uh, when i actually took up post uh, i discovered that um, the problem was that there weren't sufficient books in the library in fact i think there was only one vaguely academic book on new religions so I thought, well, what do I do? So uh, I decided that the thing to do was to write round as many organisations as I was likely to cover and to say, how about donating some of your own literature? And then I explained that that would have the advantage to them, that uh, they would... Uh, be able to put across their beliefs and practices without being filtered by uh, negative media or journalists that might just get things wrong. So actually we did quite well out of that. Uh, we got the entire Encyclopedia of Mormonism uh, out of that, which was a great find in those days. That was back in 1993. Uh, you can see that encyclopedia free on the internet now, but um, the whole encyclopedia then in hard copy was worth over a thousand pounds. So uh, we, we did really well out of uh, that particular project. But the Jehovah's Witnesses said, um, we're sorry that uh, we don't normally send books out just for the asking. We'd like someone to call on you first. So uh, they uh, arranged for me to have the city overseer visit my office. And actually, we laugh about this now because I was thinking, what a nuisance. Why can't they just send the books? And he actually, he says now he was very nervous coming to a university and knocking the door of someone uh, he didn't know. But um, anyway, Bill, the city overseer, was uh, a very nice guy, very personable, very helpful. And we talked a lot about what I was planning to do. And one of the things that uh, I'm accustomed to doing when I teach religion 
is to make sure that students actually hear from the horse's mouth, uh, from adherents of a religious group, what it means to belong to uh, their organisation. Uh, obviously, that doesn't mean they should be uncritical, but it does mean that they should hear what a uh, religious movement has to say about themselves. So we got Bill to talk to the students, and uh, we did a number of sessions every time the module ran. Um, he would say a bit about the witnesses. I would give my own exposition. And that was good for me, too, because um, if you're talking about Jehovah's Witnesses in front of a Jehovah's Witness, you then realize that you need to watch what you say. You need to get things right. And uh, you uh, have to be careful about jokes that you make. Uh, I mean, eventually we did get to the point where I could tell him some of the, the jokes that are going around about um, Jehovah's Witnesses and he'd laugh at them. But um, it takes quite a bit of building up of a relationship like that. And um, Bill said to me, um, his family were, I mean, obviously they were witnesses as well. He said, why don't I go and introduce myself to them? Uh, they run a stall at Dudley Market. So I was a bit apprehensive about going to a stall holder when I wasn't intending buying anything from them. But um, his family who were behind the counter were uh, extremely nice and seemed very pleased that I had made that contact. And relationships developed from there. Um, I started to attend the occasional Kingdom Hall meeting to see what um, that was like. And um, the relationship built up. It also became apparent that um, there hadn't been a good book written uh, from a scholarly perspective since 1976, which was when James Beckford's The Trumpet of Prophecy was published. Um, and that was a sociological study. So my approach is a bit different. Um, I was trained at a Church of Scotland seminary um, about half a century ago. So I'm interested in the theology of... Um, uh, an organization, what do they believe, what do they practice? And that's basically been the theme of uh, my writing. I, I'm not quite so interested in uh, statistical trends and uh, what sort of people join, what occupations they have, which was very much uh, Jim Beckford's approach, which has its place, of course, but uh, I'm better qualified on the doctrinal side. So uh, that was why uh, Exploring New Religions came out, I think that was 1997, which had something on JWs, but wasn't exclusively on them. And then um, the Scarecrow Press, as they were then called, um, were doing a series of historical dictionaries, which were reference works about religions and ideologies. And um, I did the one on New Religious Movements, and then the series editor uh, was wanting someone to do Jehovah's Witnesses. So I thought, well, that's a challenge. Actually, I'd quite like to do that myself. So that was how that book got off the ground. And it's kind of grown from there. I've um, written quite a bit on the Watchtower organization. I really appreciate uh, a lot of what you said there. Uh, I think it's good, not just uh, one of the things, this audience for this podcast here is uh, primarily although not exclusively, uh, Christians, conservative Christians, and we're trying oh. to provide an alternative perspective for them, not only in terms of content and approach, but manner, how one goes about the subject. And I think talking to, rather than just reading about members of other religious movements uh, is very important. And I work for the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, and one of the things we do 
is whenever you're talking with somebody about somebody in another religious tradition, if they're not in the room, then we speak as if they were, so that it helps keep mm. us honest uh, and fair in the way in which we're, we're talking mm. about others. So I really appreciate that, that approach mm. you're taking there. Uh, we're going to be following, for the most part, uh, the order in your book, Jehovah's Witnesses, A New Introduction. Um, I think I changed the order up a little bit in the way I've outlined some of the questions, but we'll put a link in that in the program notes uh, so folks can seek that out, as well as some of your other books. So let's begin with the history. How did the, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Watchtower come to be? Well, they originally um, were um, a publishing house. Uh, they're called, they're still called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And that was the original idea that they would just produce Bibles and tracts. Uh, a tract, not just being a pa pamphlet. Some of them were quite long. But um, these were the materials that they brought out. And then uh, Charles T. Russell, the founder leader, uh, produced the Watchtower magazine, which um, came out in 1879. And that's been published on um, a semi-monthly basis um, ever since then. Well, actually, it's not semi-monthly now. It's less frequent because they want you to look at the, the website. But um, what happened originally was that uh, various congregations uh, would get the Watchtower literature uh, they would use it at their meetings, they would discuss it, and it would be part of their worship. Uh, so the Watchtower Society became a kind of federation of congregations. Um, Russell went around lecturing and promoting his ideas um, countrywide in the States, and then worldwide. He, he got as far as Japan, I think, was his furthest. Um, but he traveled all over the place, uh, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and that um, Armageddon would soon come and that people had to um, prepare for uh, the the end times and more especially for what lay beyond uh, the um, everlasting paradise that uh, they could hope to experience. So that was Russell. Russell died in 1916 and uh, Joseph Franklin Rutherford was the person who succeeded him uh, he was a lawyer, and I guess being a lawyer, he wanted to get everything in proper order. So uh, he made sure that the society was more than a federation. They had to come together as one organized community with um, what he called theocratic management, which is what they look for in the future, a society that will be governed by God, or Jehovah, as they prefer to call him. So that's what they're looking for. And they wanted, uh, Rutherford wanted the organization to kind of mirror um, that uh, particular pattern. Uh, God would be in charge, but of course it's humans that need to do the physical organizing. And um, that was what um, Rutherford did. Uh, there was a kind of line-managed structure in the organization, which still exists today, although with some alterations. Uh, religious groups and organizations have different concepts of how one becomes a member or joins the group. How does one become a Jehovah's Witness? Well, you could go off your own bat to a kingdom hall, 
they're open to the public. I don't think anybody does just walk straight in because uh, with religious organisations, there's always a disincentive. Um, somebody once said to me that uh, if you're not familiar with uh, activities in church, it would be like me going into a betting office. But I've never been in a betting office in my life. I, I wouldn't know what to do, right? So um, do, you, do you fill in a form or do you go up to the counter or, or what? Um, you'd be very embarrassed. At least I'd be very embarrassed. And I mean, people don't uh, typically go into um, religious building off their own bat. So in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, your likely initial contact would be somebody coming to your door. That's what they've had a reputation for in the past. And Joseph Franklin Rutherford, um, actually, he made it a condition of being an elder that they did house-to-house work. So um, they've done that ever since, with the exception of the pandemic years. Uh, actually, they'll be back in September. Uh, that's the their latest um, uh, policy. Uh, the other thing that they do, which started around about 2012, were the literature carts that you see in the streets. Uh, they find a place where there is um, likely to be high footfall, and then they will set up their cart. And um, generally speaking, they're not proactive. They don't so grab hold of you in the street and say, would you like to be interested? They wait for you to approach them. So um, if you do that, then uh, they might give you a copy of the Watchtower or Awake magazine. They're not so keen on handing out books now because when they've done that in the past, um, members of the public have taken them and then they put them in the uh, next trash can. So they don't want to waste their, uh, as they see it, important material. Um, they, they want to make sure that it uh, finds a good home. So... Um, the literature cart is one way. Uh, the modern literature carts actually have a QR code on them. So you're encouraged to use your smartphone and uh, go high tech. And then if you do that, you'll get onto their website, JW.org. Now, from there, you can undertake a Bible study course, uh, which, uh, what's its name again? Uh, Enjoy Life Forever. That's what it's called. Um, They've had various key publications that they've used on these Bible studies, as they call them. Now, uh, that would be the next stage up from the literature cart and uh, the house-to-house call. If you express an interest in not too long, they would say, would you like to do a Bible study? Now, a Bible study uh, isn't perhaps quite what Christian evangelicals would uh, think of as a Bible study. They don't pick a book of the Bible and go through it with you. It's not like the Scripture Union or organisations like that that will have a passage for the day that you reflect on. Um, the course is designed to take you through the uh, key beliefs and practices of the Watchtower organisation. So it will be thematic rather than um, uh, Bible orientated um, to start off with. Now, um, Enjoy Life Forever, uh, that's slightly more high-tech because um, a lot of it is online. Uh, to avoid wasting printed material, uh, they prefer to 
uh, give people a kind of sample hard copy if that's what you want, and then they would direct you to the online parts of the course. I think that there's a big hard copy book of Enjoy Life Forever. I haven't actually seen it, but um, I, I believe that uh, not being into high technology won't be a bar to uh, having the teachings explained that way. So somebody will go through it with you, uh, either online uh, or in your home, or they can arrange for uh, a mutually convenient place. Uh, if you say, well, I'd like to meet up in a cafe, you can do that and go through the Bible study course with um, a Jehovah's Witness. So if you get that far, then uh, they'll invite you to a Kingdom Hall meeting. Uh, that will be the next part. Well, you don't need to finish the course before you go to the, the Kingdom Hall, but um, that will be yeah, the next step up from just talking to somebody um, at your home. Um, at the Kingdom Hall meeting, you would get the feel of what um, the Watchtower Society does uh, when it gathers together uh, as a congregation. Um, in due course, you would be asked if you'd like to consider baptism. So baptism is the point, well, as with uh, any Christian organization, uh, where you actually express publicly your commitment to um, the uh, ideals of the organization. Baptisms would normally be uh, carried out in a convention um, because baptism is by total immersion. So the average kingdom hall doesn't have the facilities for that because it's too small. So um, the convention is a better place. Uh, there are often thousands of people attending that rather than uh, just about 150 or so. So um, your profession of faith would really be public. And uh, from then on, um, you are a member of the society. You're subject to its disciplinary procedures. Um, if you're not uh, living an appropriate life, you could then be this fellowship. I should have said, by the way, that before you can be baptized, um, you can't just say, I'd, I'd like to be baptized now. The elders would need to meet with you and they go through quite a long list of questions to make sure that you have understood the uh, principles behind the Watchtower organization. And make sure, too, that your lifestyle is up to the standards that are expected. Uh, for example, a question that's on the list is, do you smoke? So Jehovah's Witnesses don't smoke. Uh, therefore, if you did, they would say, well, you're not quite ready for baptism yet. Um, you need to uh, take steps to give it up, and then you might be eligible once you've done that. Um, you might ask about your alcohol consumption. If you're living with a partner, are you married? Um, so um, all these things would be uh, matters that the elders would need to be satisfied on. So people that say people just join the society because it's a pedophile's paradise. I've heard that one as uh, you have. That is utter nonsense. Uh, if you wanted to... Uh, abuse your position in um, a religious organization, Jehovah's Witnesses would really be the last place you ought to consider because the, um, uh, the requirements for entry are indeed very stringent. It sounds like that, that's fascinating and kind of related to that. 
uh, one of the, I think one of the, the, the weaknesses of you know, a Protestant, especially evangelical approach to their own religion, as well as other religious traditions, is a focus on doctrine. I'm interested in theology and theological comparison, mm. as you are, that you mentioned in the beginning. But what is a, what is a lived religion kind of approach? What is a, a sampling of what it might be like in the lived religion and daily life of a Jehovah's Witness? Okay, well, there are two aspects to that. One is what happens inside the Kingdom Hall, uh, the religious activity. The other is the general lifestyle. So um, in terms of what you would do in terms of your religion, um, it would be hoped that you would attend two meetings a week. It used to be more than that, but um, now it's down to two, uh, one normally on a Sunday and the other normally sometime in the middle of the week. And these combine various things, as um, I, I describe in a bit more detail in the book that you mentioned. Um, there is a, a watchtower study which takes place on a, a Sunday where um, people are expected to read a key passage in the watchtower and then uh, there will be a leader that... Um, stands up on the platform and um, reads uh, passages sequentially, uh, reads paragraphs sequentially, and then it's open to the rest of the meeting to make comments. So it's interactive, you can raise your hand and um, then the, the, uh, the speaker will pick you out and um, you can only contribute if you are a member. So. Uh, the leader would say, uh, Sister Patel, and then uh, somebody with a microphone would come over and then um, you would make your comment. Um, it's not a discussion. You're more likely to be kind of checked on whether you've comprehended the passage, or perhaps you might be asked for an example. For, for instance, if the passage uh, was about uh, forgiveness, uh, a question might be, can you tell us an example of when you've forgiven someone for uh, some wrong they've done? And then um, someone would come up with an instance of that. Um, it's all lay-led, but people don't dress up in robes. Uh, they don't like candles or burn incense or anything like that. Um, and it's men only that uh, take part in uh, the uh, speaking from the platform. Uh, women can do what they call demonstrations. So uh, usually in the midweek meeting, uh, they might have a little slot where uh, some people, uh, usually women, go up on the platform and then it's a kind of role play. Uh, they'll perform for the congregation uh, how they might approach someone at a door. And then the other woman is the householder who might raise objections uh, she, she might say, I, I'm too busy right now. And then the other will make the response. Uh, perhaps I can come back at a more suitable time. You know, they go through this kind of rehearsing of typical situations and what you might say. Um, now that things have gone higher tech, sometimes they don't do it with real people. They might just show a video clip or a cartoon of people doing that. So, I mean, that's what the, the meetings are like. There are conventions that they all look forward to. Um, some of them are area conventions, some of them are national conventions. So um, these have a large audience. Uh, the last one I was at, I think, had 9,000 people there. So um, big support for the convention. 
you're also uh, encouraged to do house-to-house visiting of what they call publishing. Well, so publishing means proclaiming the good news. Uh, you publish abroad uh, the good news of the kingdom. So uh, it used to be that there was um, a weekly requirement of people to do that. Um, nowadays, I think it's accepted that different people have different lifestyles and you may not be able to put in 10 hours a week or whatever going um, house to house. Uh, actually, I think it's 10 hours a month. It's the kind of guideline, but it's a guideline. You're not disfellowshipped or anything if you don't meet these targets. Um, so that would be part of the expectation. Uh, when you've done your house-to-house -house publishing, you fill in a little card that you're supposed to return to uh, the elder or ministerial servant uh, who collects these, and then that goes to compile the statistical information that you'll find online, which is collected every year. So that's the uh, Kingdom Hall uh, activity. Uh, in terms of everyday life, then uh, there aren't particular rules apart from uh, the rules that would be expected of any Christian, like not committing adultery, not stealing. You can drink alcohol, but in moderation. They don't smoke, as I mentioned. Um, in terms of your occupation, Jehovah's Witnesses tend to favor trades rather than professions. Uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that they think that um, university life might get you into bad associations, as they call it. That's based on 1 Corinthians 16, verse 33, where uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, avoid harmful associations. So um, if you're at school, at university, you might come across people that lead you into drugs or alcohol abuse or promiscuous sex. Uh, there are all these temptations. So they're not exactly a close community, but their friendships tend to be with their own groups of people. So I'm a kind of exception to this, I think. Uh, they will socialize with us, but that's kind of unusual. They obviously don't think I'm a harmful association, fortunately. Uh, what else should I be saying about uh, lifestyle? Uh, they go in for trades uh, partly because they want to avoid greed. Uh, mm. Massing material wealth is not an idea that they favor. Also, if you're self-employed, you're that bit more flexible to do house-to-house uh, -house work or what they call pioneering work, which means going beyond the bounds of duty in terms of um, uh, Kingdom Hall uh, missionizing. So window cleaning, for example, is a favorite profession. Uh, our windows are cleaned by Jehovah's Witnesses, um, which uh, I guess it was uh, when we moved in here first, uh, we couldn't actually get window cleaners and um, Bill the City Overseer had told the students that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses come from all walks of life. So I said to him afterwards, does that by any chance include window cleaning? And uh, it does. It's quite a favourite uh, profession um, because... 
when to clean it tends to be self-employed you can decide when you clean windows and when you don't and uh, if you want to deliver watchtower magazines or whatever uh, instead of uh, doing your paid employment then uh, you're free to do that uh, if you're a lawyer or a teacher or whatever you've got to turn up at uh, the agreed times that's not to say that there aren't Jehovah's Witnesses in these professions uh, there are but um, the general pattern is that uh, the tradespeople rather than professional people. I find the lived religion aspect of people in different religious traditions fascinating. So that's very helpful. Um, let's talk a little bit about the theology. Uh, what are some of the uh, unique theological teachings that they have, their approach to the Bible? And of course, they're known for emphasizing prophecy. Mm. There's a lot there. Can you unpack some of that? Well, the first key principle is that they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, it's slightly inaccurate to call them fundamentalists, because fundamentalism involves a bit more than just inerrancy of the Bible. Um, they, the people that assembled at uh, the conference in Niagara in the late 19th century formulated five principles of fundamentalism. Uh, inerrancy of the Bible was one, the virgin birth was another, um, what were the other three or five principles? Um, uh, another was the deity of Christ, which they don't accept. Um, the, uh, uh, another is the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, which again, they don't accept. They accept the resurrection, but say, well, it wasn't physical, it was spiritual. But that's kind of jumping ahead. Um, the theology is part of a, a system it's based on the Bible. Um, when, they, when they talk about prophecy, uh, that's often misunderstood. They don't have any new revelations, but they're not like Joseph Smith or Sun Myung Moon or um, these figures who have uh, claimed special access to, to God or to angels or whatever. Uh, their theology is entirely derived from the Bible. So in theory, at least, uh, you ought and I ought to reach the same conclusions as them if we studied the Bible in that way. So uh, that's the, the first key principle. And what they will then say is that um, the, uh, the Bible talks about the situation in the early church, which was the kind of ideal that um, Jesus had for his followers. Uh, at a fairly early stage, Christianity, they claim, became corrupt. It uh, imbibed ideas from Greek philosophy and from um, other religions and uh, became corrupted. It became apostate in, in their words. So their aim fundamentally is to restore Christianity to its original form. So things like house-to-house -house work, um, that's based on the Bible. Uh, Acts 16, verse 16, talks about the early believers going from house to house, which they take to mean what they do, going from one door to another, um, offering you their, uh, their message. So they would also note that uh, the Bible doesn't uh, indicate the um, key ideas that Christianity has latched onto at uh, this later stage. Uh, the Bible, they say, doesn't assert the deity of Christ. It doesn't say that Christ was God himself. It doesn't say he was 
one of three persons that forms a trinity. Um, so they're going back to what they perceive as Bible standards and um, getting back to that. Uh, things like celebration of Christmas, for example, um, they will say that, again, that's syncretism, Christianity uh, imbibed the Roman Saturnalia, and that's ultimately why um, Christians celebrate it, but they want to avoid it. Similarly, Easter, they say, is a pagan festival, so uh, you don't celebrate that. It was an ancient fertility rite, they say, so avoid that. Um, so uh, these are things that uh, they want to shed. They, they don't want to be part of um, a religion that uh, has got these, um, uh, these accretions. So uh, they will also say that um, one has to go by what the Bible actually prescribes. So Jesus never says, you must celebrate my birthday. The early church didn't say, you must celebrate my birthday, or you must celebrate Jesus' resurrection by celebrating Easter. Uh, so they don't. On the other hand, the Bible does say, uh, go and baptize all the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So baptism is something that is very much on their agenda. Uh, Jesus said... Um, do this in remembrance of me at uh, the Last Supper or the Lord's Evening Meal, as they prefer to, to call it. So they will celebrate that annually in the memorial service. So one has to look to the Bible to see what one should believe and what one should practice. So that's really the key to the, the lived religion of Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, given that they're their self-perspective is that they are, are trying to really be biblical, uh, even though we might disagree with that. What, what is their mm. stance then, their perspective on other groups that would consider themselves Christians, they would have strong disagreements with? I know the Latter-day mm. Saints believe that they're a restoration mm. of original Christianity. Would Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, that they're kind of a, a remnant, a small group that's being faithful? What is the stance that they would have towards the rest of Christendom? Well, they often talk about being in the truth. That is a key expression that they often use. So putting it bluntly, uh, anyone else uh, who's not in the truth must be in error. So uh, you and I, I guess, well, we're not in the truth. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. Therefore, uh, from uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses perspective, we need to be brought into the truth. As far as restoration is concerned, um, well, I think that's a kind of, it's a difficult issue when you say you're trying to restore something. Uh, what do you take as uh, the original form of Christianity? So again, uh, JWs would go by uh, what they think the Bible says. Um, I guess, uh, unlike groups like the Amish, for instance, um, that doesn't extend to not accepting technology. So, I mean, if you're an Amish, you're saying, well, uh, okay, uh, you know, Jesus didn't use the internet and, and Jesus didn't use electricity, so <laughs> we, we don't do that. Uh, though I think the Amishes are reconsidering that too. I, I see they've got a website now, so uh, not quite <laughs> sure how they square that with their original beliefs. Um, 
JWs have been a bit conservative on technology, um, but they certainly don't say you've got to go back to just going around in carts drawn by horses or anything like that. Um, when the internet uh, came into existence, they were at first very wary because um, they said uh, that could involve bad associations. So some of the 1990s Watchtower and Awake articles on the internet uh, basically warn people of the dangers uh, that you could uh, you could mix up with uh, get mixed up with people that aren't witnesses aren't in the truth. They could draw you away from the society. They could um, inject uh, ideas that are inimical to uh, their teachings. So they've actually now reconsidered that because what they see about the internet is that um, you can go on the internet, you can go to JW.org, and then you're getting it from the horse's mouth. You're hearing what JWs say about themselves. You're not relying on even people like me who, are, who try to be sympathetic. Um, you're actually getting the truth as they see it. So... Um, they're actually very high tech now, and um, I think I may be right in saying that JWOrg is one of the most uh, most visited websites. It's certainly very professionally done. I'll have to go out and take a look. I haven't been out there in quite some time. Uh, you may have covered some of this already when you talked about the daily life, but what about... Uh, we know what they don't practice, things like uh, the 4th of July and Christmas and those kinds of things. But are there any important rites of passage and, and festivals? Well, the one important uh, festival in the liturgical calendar, if you can call it that, that that's not a term they use. But, right. Uh, uh, it would be the memorial. So that happens on uh, the 14th month of Nisan, the Jewish month. So... Uh, that's usually sometime in April. Um, if you can't work it out, and I, I never can, um, they will publicize on their website when the memorial is. And uh, the last e evening meal that Jesus had with his disciples, that took place uh, after sundown. Uh, they believe it was a Passover meal, uh, which mainstream Christian scholars argue about. It's not all that clear in the Bible exactly what this meal was, but um, JWs do believe it was a Passover. So um, it's celebrated annually. And um, at that event, uh, bread and wine get passed around the congregation. Now, you're not supposed to consume the bread and wine unless you belong to the 144,000, which we should probably have talked about earlier, come to think, because uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there are 144,000 people who will rule with Christ in heaven. In fact, some of them are already in heaven ruling with, with Christ. Now, um, in the early years of the organization, that was a kind of expectation that everyone that would belong to that category and would on death be taken up into heaven and um, then uh, that will be their eternal destiny. Uh, possibly when the organization grew to a larger number than that size, that had to be reconsidered because um, 
according to statistical information, there are something like 8.7 million Jehovah's Witnesses. Right, so they can't all be belong to the 144,000. Actually, I think that number is conservative. Um, these are uh, people that do their publishing work. So there are actually many more that attend the memorial uh, gathering um, every year. But I think I'm kind of getting sidetracked there. Uh, that <laughs> 144,000 will consume the emblems, as they call them. Uh, so... The rest of the congregation um, are judged to belong to the great crowd, which in effect means pretty well all of them. Um, recently, I haven't seen anyone consume the elements, at the, the emblems at the memorial. Uh, there was a, a rather old uh, gentleman who's now dead, uh, who used to come to the um, Darleston congregation, and he was reckoned to be one of the 144,000 that he would partake, but he was the only one. Mm. So um, there are these two categories, and that's how things are done at the memorial. There is wine and bread that are uh, believed to uh, represent the, the body and blood of Christ, but represent, not to be transformed. I mean, they don't believe in transubstantiation or anything like that, as Roman Catholics would. Um, so uh, festivals that they celebrate, that's what mm -hmm. we were talking about. Um, the memorial is one, and that's the one that uh, is celebrated in the Kingdom Hall. They have conventions, uh, as I mentioned. There aren't fixed dates for that unlike the memorial, which um, has got a definite date uh, attached to it. Outside the Kingdom Hall, they will celebrate anniversaries, uh, wedding anniversaries, I should say, because they think marriage and family life are important. So it's quite common if you go to a Jehovah's Witness home and see lots of cards around the place, the chances are that that's their wedding anniversary. And they're usually very proud of that. And they will celebrate in whatever way they think is appropriate. Um, witnesses are often portrayed as people that don't have much fun because they don't celebrate Christmas and don't have birthdays. But uh, that's far from the case. Uh, there are anniversaries and also some families um, institute what they call a presence day. So uh, instead of Christmas, they'll say, well, OK, we don't celebrate Christmas, but uh, I'd like to give you a present. Um, why don't we fix on such and such a date, usually far apart from Christmas, so that they can't mm. be confused. Um, and then um, we'll uh, exchange presents as a family. So they do that uh, as people might do if it was Christmas, but possibly in a more modest way. They don't really go along with the all the commercialism of uh, Christmas, and they, they see that as one of the problems. Well, unfortunately, <clears throat> the Chovas Witnesses have had their own challenges uh, and some controversy, and the media tends to focus on that quite a bit. We would be remiss if we didn't at least acknowledge mm. and unpack some of it, like this process of disfellowshipping, uh, blood transfusion issues, and some recent controversies over sexual abuse. Can you talk to some of those things? Okay. Well, blood transfusion, they certainly don't accept blood transfusion because um, they believe that that was the uh, implicit command that God gave to Noah. He said that um, 
uh, one had not to imbibe, I think uh, with Noah it said eat the blood. So a blood transfusion is not eating, but uh, one of the principles that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have is that uh, the commandments in the, New, the Old Testament or in Hebrew Aramaic scriptures, as they call them, they are old covenant. They're not binding on people unless they're reinforced in the new. Right. So uh, I mean, keeping the Sabbath, for instance, that's old covenant, but it's not reinforced in the new. Um, they don't, uh, uh, they're not like Seventh-day Adventists that insist on meeting on a Saturday, for instance, um, but getting back to blood, um, that instruction to Noah is reinforced in the new because um, in Acts 15, I think it is, First Council of Jerusalem, where there's a controversy about the Jewish dietary laws, uh, they reached the conclusion that they should abstain, the early apostles reached the conclusion that they should abstain from things strangled and from blood. And the word used is abstain. So uh, that doesn't just mean eating, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, that means any form of imbibing. So um, that is why they object to blood transfusion. I think, um, although they do acknowledge that there are people that have died as a result of refusing blood transfusion, equally they will point out that uh, there are people that have died precisely because they have had a blood transfusion. Uh, certainly in the news in the UK right now, there are people that are being compensated because they had contaminated blood given to them in a, a hospital. So um, th that's why they object to blood. They say it's a violation of um, the Noahide law as interpreted by the, the Council of Jerusalem. It's also worth saying, actually, most people don't ever need blood transfusions. So... Uh, to say that that's part of their lifestyle, I think, is somewhat misleading. Uh, I don't think I know any Jehovah's Witnesses that have been offered blood transfusion at any point. Um, I've read about them. Um, I've been an expert witness in cases that have involved blood transfusion, but um, uh, it's not normally a big deal for very many of them. Um, Disfellowshipping was the other thing we mentioned. Uh, what happens it, to be disfellowshipped? You need to have committed an offence that has two witnesses, which is uh, what the, the Bible teaches. Uh, so uh, if, there, if there's only one witness to uh, a crime, then uh, unless you're prepared to confess in front of a judicial committee, um, you're not disfellowshipped. Disfellowshipping is not quite like expulsion because um, you can ask to be reinstated. If the elders are satisfied that you have suitably repented, then, of course, um, repentance and forgiveness are Christian principles. So a lot of people that are disfellowshipped um, are readmitted. I seem to vaguely recall um, one of the... Um, researchers uh, at their headquarters telling me that um, something like a third of disfellowship members actually came back into the society. So it's kind of like, I guess, being suspended. You can still attend Kingdom Hall meetings, and they would encourage you to do that. 
it used to be that you were told to sit at the back and um, enter and exit without speaking to anyone. Um, that's been slightly relaxed now. You don't actually have to sit at the back. But um, I think it's the, is it the Epistle of James or the Epistle of John? I can't remember which off the top of my head, who says that um, you mustn't speak to um, an errant member. Uh, you mustn't even say good day to them. So it is quite a strict um, sanction uh, if you disfellowship. The rest of the congregation may not speak to you um, unless you are part of a family. So uh, if you belong to a family, then the family can engage in normal social interaction. But they mustn't talk about religion because if you disfellowship, then uh, you might be spreading wrong ideas about your uh, your religion. It's also not true that um, if you're disfellowshipped, then you'll be thrown out of the family home. Uh, that is a common misconception. You might be thrown out of the family home if you persist in a behavior that is uh, unsuitable for the family household. For example, if you were disfellowshipped for alcohol abuse and you were still living in your family but came home drunk every night, then uh, the, the father of the family might say, we're not having this, uh, you'll need to live somewhere else. And that may be what lies behind some of the stories about people being kicked out with um, uh, no home to go to. Um, I've only once known somebody who was disfellowshipped and um, he did come back uh, after a fairly short time into the, uh, the congregation. So the, there are misconceptions, I think, about that. Um, sexual abuse, well, uh, that often crops up. Um, the uh, Daily Telegraph has run a podcast in the UK recently about precisely that theme. Um, a lot of these stories that you hear about, about sexual abuse, are actually old stories that are uh, resurrected. Uh, one of the things that Jim Beckford pointed out was that um, the media have a habit of um, somebody, uh, I've forgotten the term he uses, but he means that they revive old stories and present them as if they're novel. And um, that, I'm afraid, was what The Telegraph did, the, the two stories that they covered in the UK, and the more, most recent one was actually seven, seven years old. It was a pretty nasty story. I, I was actually asked to write an expert witness report um, on it, so I uh, read all the details. Um, but uh, I guess that's, a, that's another story, the, the particular case. Um, in the other case they reported, uh, I read the legal report and uh, that was uh, rather horrific. In that particular instance, I think my verdict would be that uh, the congregation handled that one badly. And um, unfortunately, like everyone, congregations make mistakes. And um, JWs haven't been 100% um, uh, on the ball when it's come to um, reporting these stories. They also do say that um, you should uh, 
if you are if you think you've been sexually abused, you should report it to the police. Now, the two witness rule is often misunderstood because um, that is an internal rule as far as congregations are concerned. So they're not saying if there aren't two witnesses, everything's okay. Now, a judicial committee can't do what the police do. They can't consider forensic evidence, for example. They're not qualified to do that. Uh, so uh, the police can, on the other hand, and um, they can enforce the law. Um, as one of the circuit overseers once said to me, uh, the Watchtower Society deals with sin. The police deal with the law. So basically, the, um, the judicial aspect of Jehovah's Witnesses is more like... Um, well, any religious organization, uh, Muslims have what they call Sharia courts. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't accept uh, the law courts or the law of the land. Uh, what it does mean is that they've got um, their own internal ways of dealing with matters. So of universities, for that matter, uh, if a student has plagiarized an assignment, um, we deal with that internally, we enforce the, the rules. Uh, we don't call the police because I don't imagine they'd be much interested in, in that. But um, uh, there are two aspects of an offence. One is uh, what it means as far as the rules of one's congregation are concerned. The other is, have you broken the law? And if you have, then Jehovah's Witnesses are also committed to upholding the law of the land. Because Paul said to, I think it was the Romans, um, obey the higher authorities. So uh, a positive side of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses is that um, most of them are honest. Um, and you always get the odd dishonest one anywhere, I guess. But um, they'll uh, be very keen to fill in their income tax forms correctly. Um, I remember... Uh, inviting the city overseer out for a meal once and um, he um, wouldn't park in uh, Morrison supermarket car park because uh, he wasn't buying anything <laughs> and he was quite fussy about that um, whereas I have tended to take the view that uh, maybe I shouldn't uh, if there's there's room and the car park's not being used they, they get enough custom for me anyway um, but anyway, I mean, maybe that shows I should keep Jehovah's Witnesses' standards a bit more than I do. But <laughs> but uh, they, they do want to um, in, uh, not enforce the law, they want to observe the law. Uh, can you say a little uh, with, with our this last question here, and then if I've missed anything you'd like to cover, we can certainly do that. Uh, I've noticed... Uh, I subscribe to uh, the Bitter Winter uh, newsletter, oh, yes. amongst other things, on religious freedom. And I've noticed that the Jehovah's Witnesses have been the object of religious persecution in Russia. Can you speak to yeah. a little bit of that? Okay, well, they've been persecuted in various countries. Mm. Um, the story about Russia was that um, they've had their ups and downs in Russia. There have been periods where things seem to be going okay and things um, uh, where it wasn't. Uh, in 1997, there was a requirement that uh, there should be state registration of any religion. 
Now, that can be an advantage or it can be a disadvantage. It depends how things go. Um, they successfully registered, but then in 2002, uh, this was no doubt in the wake of um, the 9-11 Al-Qaeda attacks in the States, uh, the Russian government passed a law called On Combating Extremist Activity. Now, um, what they decided was that uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses were an extremist organization. And in 2006, they tightened up the law to make it clear that you didn't actually need to commit or, um, or uh, promote uh, acts of violence in order to be reckoned to be extremist. So um, they uh, were encouraged also by the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church has never been terribly keen on forms of religion that have challenged their authority. Because I guess, like Jehovah's Witnesses, they also claim to be the, the one true religion. Um, in 2017, um, aided by a particular gentleman by the name of Alexander Dvorkin, um, they, uh, they started not just a ban on Jehovah's Witnesses activity, but there were raids on uh, JW properties. Um, all the activities of the Watchtower organization were banned, properties were raided, and all their assets were confiscated. Uh, people have been put in prison. Some of them, uh, I'm told, have been tortured. Uh, it has been quite a horrendous time for Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. And the situation doesn't really seem to be improving in any way. Uh, there are various human rights organizations, obviously, who have said, well, it's not a matter of what they believe. Uh, it's a matter of how they're treated. And um, let's make sure that um, at least they have the right to religious freedom. But uh, there isn't a right to religious freedom um, in Russia. Is, we've covered a lot of ground and we've hit the, the main points in your great book, Jehovah's Witnesses, A New Introduction. Is there anything that I miss that you would like to cover? Well, there's probably lots that we've missed. Oh, sure. that was why I, that was probably, <laughs> that's why I've written several books on the Jehovah's right. Witnesses. Uh, so, um, I mean, I guess the, uh, the thing to say is that if people want to uh, know a bit more about uh, life as uh, Je uh, Jehovah's Witness, then uh, they can read the book. Uh, fortunately, uh, uh, this is a shameless self-promotion, but um, <laughs> it's available in paperback, which you don't often get uh, for uh, a first release of a book. And um, it's not too expensive. Uh, I think it's also available online. Not freely online, but right, right. Uh, you, you can get a, a Kindle edition. So uh, it was meant to be a kind of user-friendly, a reader-friendly introduction to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And um, uh, it was originally construed as part of the Bloomsbury series. They had a series of, um, uh, what, was it, uh, what was it called? Uh, Guides for the Perplexed. I don't know if you know that series at all, but they had Mormonism, yes. a guide for yeah. the and so on. So I did say to them, um, 
why haven't they done Jehovah's Witnesses? I'd be interested in doing a volume. So at first they said, yes, that's a good idea. Then they said, we're actually running that series down. Would I consider doing a freestanding book? And could I make it just a little longer? So the book is uh, a little bit longer than the Guide for the Perplexed series. Uh, that series was 60,000 words. Um, my one is 80,000, which is uh, just a, a bit more substantial. But the idea of the book was that it should be um, accessible. It shouldn't use lots of uh, formidable jargon, which unfortunately you get so often from academics. And um, having agreed to do the book, I thought that uh, I need to make it a bit different. I can't just summarize the previous books that I've done. So that was when uh, we had the idea, why not make it something about um, the lifestyle of the Jehovah's Witnesses. JW has lived religion. Uh, how would you go from meeting witnesses at the door to becoming uh, a full practicing witness? So um, that's the theme, that's the idea behind the, the book. And um, I hope that um, whether one agrees with either my ideas or watched her theology, that at least it promotes a bit of understanding about uh, the, the witnesses. Well, that's my hope as well. And I will, again, include a link to that book and your other books as well in the program notes. And hopefully folks who have watched and listened to our conversation uh, have can at least have, begin to have a little more understanding and pursue your further works as well. George, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. No, it's my pleasure. And thanks for the invitation. This is great. Uh, I want to thank my uh, not only my guests, but my uh, viewers and listeners. Again, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. Until the next episode.